The text we're going to be in this morning um, is Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 6, verses 17 to 26. Now, if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand, um, and some of these awesome dudes will, will bring you one. Um, if you don't own a Bible, that's our, our gift to you. But we're in, in the Gospel of Luke, so it's near the beginning of, of your New Testament, Chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 17 to 26. Let me read it, pray, and then we'll dive in. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day. And leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you, verse 24, who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Would you pray with me? Even just reading those words, Lord, should be enough to to humble us in this place. It's amazing how, while so much of the world is always kind of putting their thumb in the wind of public opinion and trying to please and speak words that tickle the ears, you just come in in love and speak hard truths. (laughs) But truths that we need desperately to hear. God, I pray that you would make good on your promise that in my weakness you will be strong and that your grace is sufficient. I ask you, Jesus, do not let the weakness of this vessel get in the way um, of the glory, of distributing the glory uh, of the riches of your gospel. I pray, Father, for every 
poor heart in this room, that they would come to see the riches of your grace. I pray for every hungry heart in this room, that they would come to be satisfied in who you are for them and what you've done. I pray for every weeping heart in this room, God, that they would see that soon and very soon, the nighttime of sorrow will turn to morning of joy. I'll pray for those that are rejected and scorned and despised and broken in this room, God, uh, persecuted in this room. I, I, I pray that they would sense um, the shining face of their accepting Father because of what Christ has done. On their behalf, Jesus, you're worthy of it all. I ask that you meet us here as we study your word together. It's in your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> I might have to take a few reprieves here and, here and then to uh, make sure I have a voice uh, as we round home at the end of this message. Um, so the words spoken by, by Christ there, in particular in verses 20 to 26, um, my goodness, if you really heard them, I, I, they're the sorts of words that make us Christians here in America, especially, uh, uneasy in our seats. I mean, Jesus doesn't mince words. He just, he just fires away. And, and I think oftentimes, uh, we as, especially as American Christians would feel uneasy in our seats hearing the sorts of things that he's talking about there. And, and in fact, when you think about it, who, who didn't really just get called out by him. I think all of us are kind of called out to the mat in the in these verses because let me let me ask you um, does anybody prefer to be rich rather than to be poor? Does that sound better to anyone? Would anyone prefer to be full of of, of good food rather than hungry? In an empty belly? Uh, that sounds like my preference. Does anybody prefer to be laughing, having a good time, than to be weeping? Well, that sounds what I'm aiming for with, with my life. Does anybody prefer to be accepted and loved by others rather than rejected, hated, scorned? I like that too. Well, the crazy thing is, is Jesus is saying all the stuff I kind of prefer. He's going, woe to you who were there. And are, you know, marshalling all your energies to get there. Blessed is the other side that I'm going, I don't know if I want to be there. That doesn't sound so good to me. So you and I, according to Jesus, it seems, are in danger of missing the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Indeed, it seems that our eternal destinies hang on kind of which of these two lists, the blessings or the woes, we uh, uh, um, situate ourselves within. Am I aiming for that one or that one? Because where I go with those lists, seems like my eternal destiny is hinging on that. Now, this is a big deal. Now, certainly there is um, nuance, I think, to this. <laughs> You know, into what Jesus is saying. There, there's critical interpretive work that needs to be done with these words that he is um, proclaiming here. But I don't want us to miss the initial punch of them. 
I don't want to so quickly interpret him away that we miss the initial punch. I think he wants us to squirm a little bit and go, wait, what does he say? What is he saying about about poverty and hunger and and, 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 and being rejected and, and weeping? What is he saying about riches and all these other things in this world? And how does what he's saying relate to me and my life? And what ought I to do about it? So <clears throat> this is kind of what I hope to uncover as we move through this text for the next um, couple of weeks or so. This week we'll be dealing with uh, the text in general, um, making, this, this is kind of the, the outline for the morning if you will, uh, making three initial observations regarding the, the, the text, and, and then I will um, draw out three kind of guiding principles, principles that I hope will help us uh, interpret the whole um, when we come to it in more detail later. So three initial observations, three guiding principles. If it helps you to put an image on kind of what I'm doing here, you could imagine this morning almost as like a flyover. We're going to get up in a plane right now. We're going to fly over this text to some degree. We're going to look down and get a general sense of the landscape. I'm going to give us some guidelines, some, some, some guiding principles to help us understand uh, the bits and pieces that we see down below. We're going to get general here, but then next week is um, God willing. I mean, I looked, and I, I'm not sure if I'm going to come back to the text or not, if I'm honest with you. We'll see. But I, I think next week we're going to parachute down from the plane, so to speak, land on the ground, and then tackle this verse by verse, having gotten a, a bigger picture of it. Make sense? <laughs> <clears throat> so, let me begin with um, the three initial observations. Um, first, as, as we cross the threshold of, of verse 20, we enter into one of the most uh, significant and perhaps one of the most familiar discourses in Luke's gospel. Jesus is delivering a sermon here. He's delivering a sermon, and this sermon will kind of carry us all the way to the end of chapter 6. Um, verse 49. Now, the content of this sermon, if you're at all familiar uh, with it, uh, parallels, I don't know if I'm going to make it <coughs> to the end here, I already feel my voice going, parallels in many ways what Matthew records in his gospel, uh, chapters 5 through 7, what's come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. How many of you are familiar with Matthew's The Sermon on the Mount? Familiar with that? Okay. I actually had the privilege of teaching college students I pastored, um, uh, you know, a number of years back through that. And three chapters, Sermon on the Mount. Wonder how long it took me? Three years. It was amazing. Now breathe with me. It's going to be okay. We're not going to do that here in Luke. I don't foresee that. Um, but I'm just trying to say this sort of material that's found in Luke and Matthew here is so rich, so deep. You could just, you could just sit in it for forever. <coughs> but now, uh, let me at least say this. The, the parallel of, uh, material in Matthew's and Luke's sermons, um, combined with the, the distinct differences that there are between the two, have led, you know, a number of scholars, a number of people to try to, um, figure out a lot of conjecture about how they relate. I'm not going to spend much time there, but I'll give you the two basic ideas. Uh, some people look at, at, at the sermon that Luke records here, and they say, oh, it's actually the same sermon. 
uh, there as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. It's just that, that they both have different kind of editorial emphases. So Luke's focusing in here on what he's doing and Matthew's focusing there, but it's the same sermon, same time frame, same moment in history. Uh, another, another way that people approach the parallels and yet the, the differences is to say, no, 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 it's actually a different sermon at a different time that Luke is recording here. It's just that Jesus, I mean, he's an itinerant preacher. So wherever he goes, he's got some key messages that are going to be, you know, he's going to be delivering to the people about the kingdom of God. He's not coming up with new material. That sounds nice to me. If I could prepare one sermon and cruise around and do that, that would be great instead of every week something new. But uh, that's what itinerant preachers deal with. So perhaps that's what's going on. That was just a little free sidebar comment. It's really of no importance to us. What matters to us in particular is this. What we have before us is the very words of God. And and we're not going to immediately default to Matthew's version of things. We're going to let Luke's words, as he records Jesus' words, stand on their own terms. Because Jesus wants to speak to us here. Now, um, second observation I kind of wanted to make uh, brings into view the broader context in which this sermon arises. Um, sorry if these initial observations are a bit boring. We'll get into some more exciting stuff in a moment, I promise. Uh, this is setting us up really for the rest of chapter 6. But... We, we need to recall the broader context in which this sermon, uh, Luke 6, 20 through 49, arises. Because uh, you might remember from last week, um, I mentioned the context for the appointing of the 12 apostles. And what was it? Ever since Jesus' baptism in Luke 3. Have things been just like on the steady incline for him, getting better and better everywhere he goes, red carpet rolling out? No, not at all. Instead, what's on the incline is, is, is opposition and resistance and rejection. Everywhere he goes, whether it's the wilderness or it's his hometown Nazareth or it's Galilee, there is resistance, there is opposition to him. And some of the fiercest opposition doesn't come where you would most expect it. You would expect it perhaps from the Gentiles, from political leaders. You would expect it from hardened sinners, people that are just given over to the, <coughs> to the dark side, so to speak. But instead, <coughs> what we see is, is that it comes at Christ, this opposition, uh, most fierce from the religious leaders in Judaism, the very people that you would expect should be ready to receive the Messiah with open arms. Now, it's in light of this context, in light of this kind of opposition and rejection, that Jesus, as we saw last week, is establishing a sort of counter-community. A, a what we called a, a new Israel, a, a new covenant people of God. And he appoints 12 apostles as kind of the leaders of this community. And now, this is where I'm going, he comes down from the mountain with these 12 and his disciples. And we see these crowds of them around him and he delivers this address, this sermon. I suppose what I'm 
trying to get at is that this sermon is essentially the charter, the constitution, the organizing principles of this new community that he is establishing. It essentially is the charter of the kingdom of God. So what we are reading in Luke 6.20 and as we make our way through the sermon is is, is, uh, material of, of critical importance. I mean, Jesus is saying, feel the weight of this. He is going to say in this that, 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 that this is what uh, his kingdom is like. This is what his children are, are to, the children of the Father are to be like. This is what his disciples will be like. If you want to know who we are and what we should be doing, that's where he's going. He's identifying the new community here for us, what they're like. If I could... Um, even break the sermon down for you even further. Um, the first thing that he is going to unfold is the marks by which the citizens of this kingdom can be identified. That's what we're going to look at today, verses 20 to 26. The marks by which the citizens of this kingdom can be identified. But then, as we make our way through, we'll see in verses 27 through 49 that he unfolds the ethics which the citizens of this kingdom will, will kind of live out. And that, that, that critical principle at the center of, of his ethical program is self-sacrificial, God-glorifying love. I mean, it's going to get crazy, you guys. It's awesome. It's going to get crazy, though. He's going to say things like, hey, listen, somebody smacks you on this cheek, give them the other. Hey, listen, somebody steals from you, don't grumble about it. Give them more of your stuff. It's going to get crazy in here for the uh, foreseeable future. (laughs) But now, if he is saying that, sorry, if he is saying that, that this is essentially the charter of the people of the kingdom, this is what they're going to be like, this is who they're going to be, what they're going to do. I mean, we have to we have to reckon with the fact that if we push back on Jesus at this point, we essentially are pushing a dagger into our own heart. <laughs> We're essentially destroying ourselves because life and death hang on whether we're in this kingdom or not. In fact, Jesus will come out. If I could give you the end from the beginning, he will come out of this sermon, the last verses, and he gives this parable. And he says, listen, those of you that heard the words that I just said, and they're going to do them. It's like the guy who's, who's building his house on the rock. And when the storm, when the, when the final cataclysmic judgment comes, they're still standing. But there are some who are going to hear what I have to say here, and they're going to reject it. They're going to turn from it. They're going to say, nah, he couldn't mean that. Nah, let's kind of wash that up a little bit and, and, and polish it, make it, make it uh, palatable for the American conscience and lifestyle. You see, there are going to be people who hear and they don't do. It's going to be like for them, they built their house in the sand. It's all about the here and now. And when the final cataclysmic judgment comes, great will be the fall for those people. So what we do with these words, critical importance to us. Now, third (coughs) and final (laughs) 
observation I wanted to make here in the beginning. Um, and as we make this observation, we're kind of ready to look at our text itself, in particular there in verses 20 to 26. There is something to the structure of these verses that I, I wanted to bring out. Uh, they're, they're incredibly uh, parallel. If you, if you have the Bible in front of you, you can see it quite plainly. I'm sure hopefully you already noticed it. But what we have is essentially a list of blessings or what, you know, have been termed beatitudes. And that's verses 20 to 23. And then a list of woes. And this is different than what Matthew has. A list of woes, verses 24 to 26. And the two lists are set in clear opposition of one another. It's, I mean, obviously the first, the second, the third, the fourth, they all correspond. Blessed are the poor, woe to the rich. Blessed are the hungry, woe to the full. Blessed are the weeping, woe to the laughing. Blessed are those who are hated, woe to those who are spoken well of by everyone. And this structure is essentially given by Christ, I said, to help us identify the key marks uh, that, 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 that the, the citizens of, of this kingdom can be known by. So in the list of blessings, we have, here's what the kingdom's citizens will be like, positively speaking. Poor, hungry, weeping, persecuted. In the negative list, the list of woes, we have what the kingdom citizens will not be like. Rich, laughing, full, popular. But it's all to help us see what these kingdom citizens are to be. And again, I imagine (coughs) we're starting to feel a bit uneasy in our seats. (laughs) At least I was as I read this. Now, we're ready, I think, for those three guiding principles, um, all three of which, I I pray, will help us untangle some of these issues that I've identified here. I want to help us, give us some guiding principles, help us understand what we're reading, help us interpret uh, some principles that will help us interpret the bits and pieces of this text. First guiding principle I would give to us is this. The world is upside down. This world, as we're living in it, is, according to God's perspective, upside down. Now, we can't help but notice the radical counterintuitive nature of Jesus' pronouncements here. I kind of opened with this in in my introduction, but in that first list, what we would woe, he blesses. I would say woe to the poor, woe to the, the crying and the depressed, woe to those that are, you know, hated. That doesn't sound fun. Woe! But he blesses. And that second list where we would come in and bless, he woes. So there's this counterintuitive, this sort of upside down reversal thing going on here. In fact, Jesus says that blessing essentially, uh, as it is to be found in this world, moves away from riches towards poverty. Moves away from fullness towards hunger and, and so on. It's moving from the second list to the first list for him. But now you have to step back 
And think about our culture. And is this not, is this not completely backwards for us? I mean, think about how the world sees blessing. Do we not define blessing as moving in the opposite direction? From the first list to the second list. Get me away from poverty to riches. In other words, we love the Cinderella stories, do we not? We love the rags to riches stories. The guy pulls himself up by the bootstrap stories. This are the sort of stories, these are the sorts of people that are highlighted. You know, Oprah sits down to interview. Tell me how you did it. Or that you turn on ESPN and you see, you know, those, 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 those kids who grew up in the ghetto and, you know, mom and dad were gone and I was in a gang, but now I'm, you know, whatever, snapping balls for the Niners. And I live in a mansion on the hills and wow, you know, we all want to see those stories. It's the sort of thing that, that's the world's beatitudes. Move from that first list to the second list, from poverty to riches. Emptiness to fullness, from obscurity to fame. And world renown, that's where the world is going to get on board. Now, I, I went to seminary in uh, Philadelphia. This was great. I mean, I did this. but um, Philly is uh, where um, Rocky Balboa grew up, Right? Have you ever seen those Rocky movies? But, but they're set, they're filmed in Philly. And, you know, Rocky is kind of the quintessential picture of a man who literally, with his biceps, kind of pulls himself from the first list poverty and whatnot over to the, the second list of, of worldly blessing. In fact, there's kind of like, there's this whole like pilgrimage that people It's foregoing worldly wealth and acclaim and all this stuff and moving towards poverty. Letting go of Hebrews 11, the great people of faith. They lived in holes in the ground as they waited for their eternal inheritance. And nothing. Jesus goes, that's the kind of movement I'm talking about. That's where blessing is found. Sound crazy? Wow. It is. <clears throat> now, if we are going to understand the kind of things that Jesus pronounces here as blessed or woeful, then we got to understand the world as Jesus sees it. 
He sees the world in light of Genesis 3. And therefore, he sees the world as upside down. Its values have, 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 have gotten inverted. Something is wrong here. Um, you may recall, let me give you a bit of theology that stands behind the upside downness of our current state of affairs. Um, you may recall, I've made this point, I think actually in the very first sermon I delivered here as your pastor, that we traditionally refer to uh, Genesis 3 kind of as the fall. But I said, wait a minute, we can, we can also refer to it, perhaps we should, as the flip. That things are not just falling there, they're actually flipping over. Now, here's uh, what I mean. Think about uh, this with me, uh, when, we, when we go to the order of creation, as God designed the world to be, what do we have? We have first vegetation put under the animals for their enjoyment, right? And the animals put under humanity. And then uh, among humanity, uh, the woman put under the man. And then the man put under God. That's the order as God kind of created it. And then we consider Genesis 3 and the fall and how it went down. And we start to see it's not just a fall. It is, in fact, a flip. It is a complete reversal. Things went upside down, point by point. Let me show you. The fall begins with what? The fruit, vegetation, the plant. And that's leveraged by what? The serpent, an animal called the beast of the field. And he gives it to who? The woman first, who then does what? Gives to the man, who then does what? Rejects the command of God and eats. It is not just a fall. It is, in fact, the very undoing of the created order. And here's what we have to see. As Adam reaches to be like God, man attempting to be like God in that moment, against his command, it's as if he capsizes creation. The picture in my mind is like, you know, when you go out on the ocean, you go out on the lake, and then you got, you know, some guy who tries to stand up. You know, you gotta sit down. You're always telling your kids, sit down. And you, you know, you try to get up on a kayak or something, stand up. Well, guess what happens? He's, as Adam is reaching up, the whole created order flips, capsizes. And now, this is the kind of world that we live in. The ground bears thorns. The animals are against us. Women long to rule over men. Men have in their hearts now by nature a stubborn principle of pride. Against God. Self-reliance that says, I don't want God. I don't need God. I can be God. My own God. Everything is upside down. Now, <clears throat> to make even more sense of this for you, if I haven't already lost you, think about what happens when God himself enters this fallen and flipped upside down world. Think about it. Point by point, it's incredible. When God enters the world, 
he becomes the opposite. He becomes man. It's crazy. It's wild. This place is upside down. Therefore, brothers and sisters, when the Messiah comes to talk to his messianic community about what they are to be like and what blessing looks like, as he explains it to us, we ought not to be surprised that that he's putting us, even as he's putting us right side up, if we're still in this upside down world, we feel upside down. Does that make sense? Like if if we're all upside down (laughs) and you put us right side up, well, gosh, according to the world, we're the upside down ones. We're the messed up ones. We're the confusing, weird ones. And that's why he comes and says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are the, the, the weeping. Blessed are the persecuted. This world's upside down. It's not a blessing to have this world. It's going to be righted someday and you'll be on the wrong side of it if you're on their side. Does that make sense? Now, if we lived in light of Genesis 3, it would change a lot for us, you guys. It really would. If we saw the world in light of this kind of upside-down, flipped kind of nature, it would change a lot for us. Um, give you an example. Uh, one of the pastors, scholars I respect and appreciate, uh, his ministry, Tim Keller, he was recently asked to... Um, come to Princeton Theological Seminary to deliver a course of lectures and receive a prestigious award. Great. Sounds awesome. Well, as uh, people heard about the seminary's desire to give this reward to or award to him, um, uh, people started to get outraged. It started to grow. It started to grow. Why? Well, because he holds that um, women and and uh, should not be ordained to pastoral ministry. He holds that LGBTQ community should not be ordained to to to, to ministry, and that, that that's not how God designed things to be. That it is in fact a sin. And you know, those are the hot button issues in our day, no matter what the Bible says. And so the outrage started to grow and grow and grow. Grow and grow, and finally Princeton said, "You know what? Revoke the reward, the award. We're not giving it to you." And then, one of my good friends from seminary writes this on his Facebook feed about this event. I'm sure the man Tim Keller, who preaches the upside down kingdom, will not be losing sleep over not receiving this prize. You see, Tim Keller understands that the world is upside down and that as Jesus is writing his kingdom and bringing things right side up, according to the world, we're upside down. That the way up is the way down. The way to riches is the way to poverty. All these things. And so Tim Keller is not going to lose sleep over, man, I thought the world would accept me and love me for being on God's side. I thought it was going to get better here. No, 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 no. When you understand that this world is upside down, you don't, you don't lose sleep over the fact that when you side with God, the world doesn't side with you. You expect that. You expect your boss won't appreciate your values or that, you know, You'll be rejected by your crew or whatever. 
You expect it. We're with Christ when we suffer in this upside-down world. Now, second uh, guiding principle that I wanted to give you. The identifying marks of... um, (coughs) Excuse me. The kingdom citizens that Luke gives us, I want us to know that they are, are, are both physically and spiritually understood. I think a good deal of some of the discomfort we feel with Luke's <coughs> Beatitudes, <coughs> his blessings, the thing, his language here is that it's unapologetically physical. He just comes out and says it. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. We're going, wait, like physically? What does he mean? Physically? So we get all uncomfortable and uneasy about this. We, we, I think this is one of the reasons why Matthew's Beatitudes are so much more popular. They kind of go in the realm where we're more comfortable, poor in spirit. Oh, okay. So I can have all the world's goods and be poor in spirit. Okay, good. Okay, good. Is it spiritual? But... Let me think about this with you, because what I want us to see is, is I, I think we should read some of Matthew's stuff in light of Luke's stuff, and Luke's stuff in light of Matthew's. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me make it plain for you. Luke tends to be unapologetically physical. Matthew tends to be... Um, more spiritual in his list of Beatitudes. Um, I just mentioned it. I want to make it plain. Luke says, blessed are the poor, for example. Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, when we look at these two or others, I mean, because Luke says, blessed are the hungry. Matthew says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That sounds nice. It's a spiritual thing. It's a heart thing. But I think what we should do is see that they're essentially making the same point with different emphases. And that we should note, we should kind of read the uh, the various Beatitudes against one another. And I want to do that with their first Beatitude here for a moment. I want to show you how this works. Because I think Luke's categories, therefore, are both physical and spiritual. And Matthew's categories are both spiritual and physical. Let me show you how this might work. On the one hand, Matthew will not allow us to overemphasize the physical to the neglect of the spiritual. Um, so what we see, if, if, if we look at, at, at what Matthew has to say about the first beatitude, it's going gonna, it's gonna to counteract some of the, the, the physical nature of Luke's first beatitude. We might read Luke's if we read it alone and think, wow. Okay, so uh, Jesus is pronouncing blessing upon the, 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 the uh, physical economic state of poverty. Meaning, hey, you know, open up your wallet. If you've got stocks, bonds, and a big portfolio, you're not in the kingdom. Period. But if, you know, if all you have is a couple bucks or you got a little piggy bank that your mama gave you in your five with a few coins in it, the kingdom's yours. Period. No. No, 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 no. 
You could read that and think he's just simply almost like christening or, or anointing a, a physical, economic circumstance. And he's not doing that merely. And Matthew helps us. He helps us remember. Wait a minute. There's spiritual direction here too to these words. There's spiritual import that physical poverty, as Luke identifies it, should have a spiritual dimension to it if it's going to be truly blessed. And here's what we have to admit. It's, it's quite neat. Um, is it not true that it's often the physically poor um, that are more open to the things of God? That are more open, in other words, to seeing themselves as poor in spirit. Because it's the rich, and here's why he might say, woe to the rich. Well, it's the rich, it's their money, and having all the stuff of this world that continues to kind of feed that principle of pride and self-reliance. Is I don't need God, I got everything I need. I got it myself. I pulled myself over from the first list to the second list. I've done this. I don't need God. When things start to go wrong, when the bottom line starts to decrease, when your wallet's getting a little lighter, when you've got to crack open that piggy bank and the coins are gone, you start to see, maybe I'm not in control. Maybe I need help. Maybe I need God. Maybe what I've been, how I've been exalting myself, relying on myself has been a sham. And in fact, I'm poor in spirit before a holy God and I got to get right. That's why James would say, you know, the, the poor of this world that God has chosen to be rich in faith. The context, physically poor, are more prone to be rich in the spiritual stuff of faith. Now, isn't this, in fact, what the immediate context of these blessings and woes actually bear out? I wonder if you noticed who it is that's surrounding Jesus at this point. Who is it? Verses 17 to 19, I'll show you who it is. A great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. That's who's standing around him right now. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. (laughs) Verse 19, and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and he healed them all. And it's those people, to those people that Jesus delivers this sermon. It says, blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry and the weak or whatever. Don't you see, who are the ones more inclined to follow, to chase Jesus down, to listen to him, to want to touch him? People that are physically unwell. Their eyes have been opened, spiritually, hopefully, through the breaking down of their physical blinders. Matthew helps us keep that in view. And I should say, some of you might find yourself even there today. I mean, this is how I came to Christ. I think I'm in control. He breaks me down. No, I'm not. Circumstances, physical circumstances alerting me to my spiritual condition. And some of you today, perhaps, man, I got my plan. I got everything together and it just crashed down. 
It's just down on the ground in a, in a heap of rubble. Whatever your dreams were, whatever your, your plans were, your five-year goals, no way, it's not going to happen. And you have a choice at this point. Are you going to steal your heart against God and say, how could you? Or are you going to enter into the flow of these beatitudes? I say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not going to curse this trial. I want it to lead me. Lead me to the Savior. Lead me to the one who is in control. Lead me to the one who can, who can deal with my poverty with the riches of his grace. Let your trials in some strange and upside down way be a blessing to you. Now, on the other hand, if we're reading Matthew and Luke together, this gets uh, where we'll be, we'll be rounding home here shortly. Um, but well, if we are reading Matthew and, and Luke uh, against one another in these Beatitudes, the spiritual emphasis and the physical emphasis, while Matthew will not allow us to overemphasize the physical because he's reminding us of the spiritual, Luke will not allow us to overemphasize the spiritual because he emphasizes the physical. Now, hear me on this, because I actually think that it can move in the opposite direction. And this is partially, again, why Luke makes us a bit uncomfortable. We feel safer with Matthew, because we can tell ourselves that we can be poor in spirit. But, you know, while we maintain our riches in the world, and we pursue the riches just like everybody else. Oh, you know, I'm poor in spirit, even when I'm filthy rich in front of my neighbor. You know, it's a spiritual thing. And Luke kind of gets in our faces. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. There is something physical about this poverty that Jesus also blesses and says is good. And I don't want you to miss that either. So, so just like the physical state of poverty can lead into our spiritual state of poverty, I think the spiritual state of poverty can lead us actually towards the physical state of poverty. Now, hear me on this. This is crazy. This is crazy. But I am not trying to say, uh, in, in one sense, that it is wrong in and of itself to be rich. I'm not. Paul himself would say as much. I am, however, saying that if we are truly going to follow the principles of discipleship laid out for us by Christ, I can't imagine we will stay rich for very long. I mean, let me just show you what I mean. He, he talks about selling what we have and giving to the poor. Why? So that we might have treasure in heaven. That's Luke 18.22. He talks about in Luke 14, 12 through 14, using your wealth to throw banquets, feasts for the poor, the crippled, the lame. Why? Particularly because they can't pay you back in this life. And if they can't pay you back in this life, your father will pay you back at the resurrection of the just. So invite to your parties people who are just going to use you, abuse you, and won't be able to give you anything back. That's kingdom ethics. Or we'll get there in a couple of weeks, and I already kind of alluded to it. 
But man, he's going to talk to us about giving our shirt to the one who steals our jacket. That's Luke 6, 29. He's going to talk about giving to everyone who begs from us. That's Luke 6, 30. He's going to talk about lending to people in need and expecting nothing in return. Luke 6, 35. I just don't see how we can live by that ethic and maintain our impressive portfolio. And do with that what you will. But it seems to me the poverty we have in spirit that says, man, I need God and God alone. And if I have him in his kingdom, I have all that I need. That sort of poverty in spirit will have some sort of physical expression as we forego the things of the world in love for God and love for neighbor. We say, man, I got it all in him. And it, just, it might trend, it seems to me, towards poverty of worldly goods. Now, where's the line on that? I don't know, but I'll just leave that there for your um, contemplation. If that sounds crazy, leaving everything and trending a lifestyle that's trending towards poverty now, uh, I need to, if if that sounds crazy, I need to end here with um, the final guiding principle. And that is this. A story is determined by its end. Here's what I mean by that. I I phrased this last principle along the lines of a quote I once heard from an American actor screenwriter named Orson Welles. He says this, if you want a happy ending, that depends, of course, on where you stop the story. Do you hear that? So, in this way, a story is determined by where it ends. A comedy, in the old, you know, Shakespearean sense of it, not just slap happy jokes, but a good, heartwarming story is determined by how the thing ended. Romeo and Juliet, tragedy. Why? They die at the end. But if they didn't die at the end, but so I can't actually remember. They do, they do die at the end, right? <laughs> but if they found out that actually it wasn't poison and they woke back up, it would be what? Comedy. The whole thing would be this good story because it ended well. So the end of the story is going to determine whether what happens back here is tragedy or comedy. And when we look at Jesus' blessings and woes in our text, we might be prone to think, man, he's got it wrong, according to this life. I mean, riches are the good stuff. You know, having people like you, that's the good stuff. Yeah, but where does it end? Where does it end? When once we see where the story ends, we get why he blesses what he blesses. And why he calls woeful what he calls woeful. Because it's the poor who get the kingdom in the end. Because it's those who are hungry now who are filled in God's presence in the end. Because it's those who are weeping now, he says, now, to emphasize this point, who who will be laughing in the end when every tear is wiped from their eye. And it's those who are hated now that in the end will, will be living in the sunshine of their father's acceptance and joy and love forever.
So where's the tragedy and, and, the, and the comedy now? When you take the end of the story, what Jesus blesses and what he woes, so to speak, makes sense. Makes sense. And I'll just leave you with this. Jesus is not asking us to go where he's not already gone himself. This is his story. I mean, that's what I was alluding to essentially earlier. He, the rich one, became poor. He, you know, gave himself to bodily needs. So on the cross, what's he saying? I thirst. My body needs. I thirst. He, you know, gives up the joy that he knew with the Father to come down and acquaint himself with our grief. He, of course, would know the persecution, what it was like to be spurned, scorned, hated, and ultimately killed. But he would enter into the end of the story in the resurrection. And he's calling to us from there, from there. Your words make me uncomfortable. And the thought of living a lifestyle that, that trends towards poverty or trends towards hunger or sorrow sounds scary to me. And yet I watch the apostles do it. I watch you do it. And God, we trust where the story's going. We trust there is a happy ending for us. And so, God, I pray you would help us to take up our cross and to follow you. I pray that even in the midst of that sort of lifestyle, we would find incredible joy in your presence. We're so, so grateful uh, for the fact that when you call us um, away from the things of this world, as in those blessings and woes this morning, it's not because you're calling us away from joy or calling us away from the things that truly satisfy. It's that you're calling us to something so much better, so much more lasting than anything this earth can give. And God, that perspective is something I can't magically give to people or myself from a Bible study. Your spirit has to open our eyes and keep them set upon the risen sun, upon the new Jerusalem, upon the time coming soon when everything upside down is reverted and put right side up. God, we want to be with you then. We, we want to be on the right side of that. 